0: So just to start things off, I will uh, introduce myself. My name is Zoe Paddock and I'm, I'm joining you from Ontario Justice Education Network. Um, I'm a third year law student who's had the pleasure of, of working with Ogen for the summer and, and participating in creating amazing programs like the Summer Law Institute. Um, and yes, today we have a webinar from Justin, Justice for Children and Youth. Um, and before I get into introducing our panelists, we have just a couple of zoom housekeeping items Um, and so first of all if there are any links to be shared with you all during the presentation that are referenced by the panelists we will post them in the chat so don't worry about following up on things like that if you have questions or comments please use the q a function if you can to submit those questions Uh, i'll be keeping an eye on them during the session and generally we're going to hold our questions for the end for our q a period unless there's anything that needs to be clarified as we go here And as well as you may have noticed on entry, we're recording today's session to share um, with others who couldn't make it in person. And so it will be available along with the PowerPoint content on our website after the fact. And as well, we'd like to start off with a land acknowledgement, so we acknowledge that we are gathered upon the traditional territories of the Mississauga of the New Credit First Nation, Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Wendat, and Huron Indigenous peoples who are the original nations of this land. In making this acknowledgement, we recall as well that Toronto remains home to a large and diverse Indigenous population. This population includes victims and survivors of the residential school system and their descendants. In discussing Ontario's legal and educational systems, we recall that these are ultimately settler systems that have been imposed on Indigenous communities who had their own complex legal systems predating settler arrival. We have to recognize that settler legal and educational systems have been used to disproportionately remove autonomy from Indigenous peoples since their establishment. In making this land acknowledgement, we want to take a moment to reflect on those realities. And in doing so, we're joined by others across Ontario in acknowledging and paying respects to the traditional stewards of those specific plans as well. With that, I'd like to introduce our our panel from Justice for Children and Youth. So we have with us today, Sarah Pohl, who's the director of the Childhood Arrival Support and Advocacy Program, uh, CASA for short. Sarah has extensive experience in youth justice education and is focused in particular on youth facing personal and systemic barriers to education success and on increasing legal sector diversity. Sarah's former roles include Executive Director of the Law and Action Within Schools Program, LAWS for short, uh, the Director of Education for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, and the Director of Provincial Programs for the Ontario Justice Education Network. Sarah's commitment to ensuring education access and success for young people has been recognized with awards including a Law Foundation of Ontario Community Leadership and Justice Fellowship and a Toronto Foundation Vital People Award. Thank you for joining us, Sarah. As well, we have Erica Lalonde, uh, Program Manager of the Enhancing Access to Special Education Program, which is abbreviated as EASE. Erica has joined JFCY team to lead the development of resources for students and their families with special education needs. She recognizes the importance of engaging with young people and their families in navigating the different processes and systems and strives to keep their voices at the forefront. With a diploma and Inclusive education and an honors BA in psychology, Erica has dedicated 18 plus years uh, creating and managing programs and projects focused on increasing youth confidence and capability in navigating systems that impact their lives. Before joining JFCY, she worked with Peace Builders as restorative schools programs manager and has spent much of her professional career working in partnership with various school boards across Canada. Thank you, Erica, as well. As well, we have Kafia Abdirashid, uh, who is the education advocate at the Toronto Northwest Justice Centre. As a lawyer and social worker, she assists young people involved with the criminal justice system with any education-related issues, such as special needs learning, school registration, and suspensions and expulsions. Essentially, she helps young people to overcome any barriers standing in the way of their school engagement or success. And as well, we have Meza Damte, who is entering her second year at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law. Hello fellow law student. She has spent the summer with JFCY working on the enhancing access to special education project as well as working on a pending constitutional challenge to the minimum voting age. So as you can see, we have an amazing group with us and I'm really excited to hear all they have to share about their various projects. And uh, with all of that said, I will ask them to take it away. Thank you everyone.
1: Thanks, Zoe, for those kind words of welcome. Um, we're really happy to be here with you as well. Um, and hi, everyone. I'm Sarah, Sarah Powell. I suspect some of you um, I may have crossed paths with previously in previous roles. It's really nice to be back here working with OGN. Um, I started my career in Canada at OGN, so um, they hold a strong faith, uh, place in my heart. But I wanted to welcome you, everybody who's attending. Um, Thanks for choosing our session uh, and hats off to you for coming to the SLI during your summer. Uh, I know it's always an amazing institute, um, but I also know that this is a really challenging year as you think about heading back into classrooms in a couple of weeks, so thanks for joining us. Um, We're already looking forward to sharing some of the particular programs that Justice for Children and Youth is currently working on and to talk with you about the underlying issues that each of our programmes or projects addresses. And in particular, we're interested in sort of exploring the different ways that different laws intersect with each other to make life and education complicated for young people. Uh, The thread through this session uh, is that while we often conceive of and teach, you know, in our school classrooms and also at our law schools, different areas of law as if they're siloed and discreet, e.g. this is contract law, this is family law, this is IP law, often that's not actually what's happening on the ground for a person. Often, in many situations, people find themselves having to intersect with a raft of different areas of law um, for one incident. So how those different laws intersect and impact each other is of vital importance particularly from our perspective, when you're thinking about young people. Our programs or projects that you're gonna hear about today all intersect with education and then another area of law. Uh, And because time's tight today, the three of us are gonna do some rapid fire, big picture overviews of these intersections and our three corresponding programs. We're gonna talk for about 10 or 12 minutes each Um, and it will be big picture, and then we're going to go through a joint scenario, and then we're really happy to answer any questions you may have. Uh, And before we begin, I I do want to acknowledge that we know you're educators. We know that uh, you're the experts in how these issues play out on the ground for young people. We know that you're often supporting young people through these situations um, as they arise in your classrooms. Um, so, that said, uh, and thanks for the kind welcomes and intros to us, Zoe. I did want to make sure that everybody understands what our clinic does. Um, I suspect some of you are familiar with it, but Mesa's um, going to give you a bit of an overview on what it is that our clinic does as a whole. Thanks, Mesa.
2: Awesome. Thank you, Sarah. Um, so, I'm really happy to be here today speaking with you. Um, Justice for Children and Youth is a nonprofit legal aid clinic. Um, we advocate for youth under the age of 18 and homeless youth or unstable housed youth under the age of 25. Um, so, JFCY takes a child's rights approach, um, and our lawyers represent children and youth in many areas of the law and many intersecting areas of the law, which is what makes the clinic unique. Um, so, anything between, oh, anything from um, child welfare, child welfare, criminal charges to education, mental health, immigration, social services. Um, And a lot of the cases that JFCY sees um, have a lot of these intersecting legal issues in one case. Um, So most of our our clients um, seek legal advice for um, individual summary legal advice, but we take on um, anything up to charter challenges at the Supreme Court level. So very wide variety of, um, of advice that we're providing. And we often get requests to do public legal education presentations in schools um, and to form partnerships in the community as well. So often JFCY will go into classrooms um, to speak to youth and um, educators as well about the work we do in the community and about um, a child's rights approach to law in general.
1: Thanks Zoe, um, Meza, and I do want to say that what that means for you and your students is that any young person in Ontario can call our clinic for summary legal advice on any type of legal issue, and they'll get advice um, that's going to help them make decisions and understand what their rights are, and adults working with young people can also call our clinic if they have inquiries on a young person's behalf, so feel free to think of us as a really good resource for any of the young people in your classes or in your lives in general. Um, But actually, I'm going to talk about my project, uh, which um, is called Some Childhood Arrivals Support and Advocacy Programme, or CASA for short. Uh, And I'm going to talk a little bit about the intersection between immigration laws and education laws. CASA is a programme that supports young people who are in Canada without immigration status or who have precarious immigration status, i.e. temporary status that may end. CASA was developed out of an education access lens. Um, I was working with young people in the Law and Action Within Schools program, which is a program that supports young people to graduate high school and access post-secondary education. The young people that law supports um, often face a myriad of barriers to education success. And one of the most hardest to deal with was lack of immigration status. It really did emerge as a particularly hard to overcome barrier for young people pushing on with the lives that they had been practicing for when the laws program, practicing for and planning for. So the first area of law that CASA deals with is immigration law, which, as you know, is a federal uh, piece of legislation. Uh, Can you go to the next slide, please, Meza? Um, My slides are very simple. Uh, the Immigration, Refugee and Protection Act is a federal piece of legislation, and it governs who gets to be in Canada and what they get to do when they're in here. So ERPA, as we call it, the ERPA, tells us who gets to visit Canada, who gets to work in Canada, who gets to study in Canada, who gets to claim refuge here, and who gets to live here permanently. Uh, doing any of those things uh, without the authorization that IRPA provides, i.e. without a permit or a visa, um, means that, you know, you really have run foul of our immigration system, and you may be subject to action including removal or deportation. So immigration law is high stakes. It's it's a big deal. It's impacting um, most aspects of a person's ability in the present and also for their future lives. The young people that I work with um, usually have no immigration status and numbers of people in Canada without immigration status are really hard to pin down. And that's for a good reason. Uh, Outing yourself and putting your hand up to be counted um, can bring with it uh, worries or vulnerabilities to attention from the Canada Border Services Agency, for example, removal. some of the estimates that we have range from 250 to 500,000 people without status in Canada and obviously a proportion of those, a portion of those are young people under the age of 18. And just so we're clear, most people without status in Canada um, don't jump the border to get here. Most people in Canada without immigration status have arrived perfectly legally through border controls Uh, and then once here their status has Ended or changed somehow, and they have remained. And you know, you will have heard many different words uh, for people in this situation, some of them particularly pejorative. So, words I hear are undocumented or people with precarious status or non status, or at the other end, words like illegal or alien. Um, But as I said, some of these young people are children. And sometimes they're here with their families, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they've come with their family, uh, or sometimes they've been sent here, uh, maybe to live with family or friends. Um, Those decisions are generally made by the adults in their life uh, for many reasons. Um, But what that means is that for young people, they're here dealing with the consequences of that decision and trying to work out how the fact of being here without immigration status is going to impact their future. The second piece of law we're dealing with today is our education law. So who has the right to access, Um, and we're in Ontario, so I'm talking about the provincial legislation of our Education Act. Our Education Act gives all children the right to attend school, regardless of their immigration status, uh, which is amazing. What that means is that in classrooms across Ontario, there will be students without immigration status In school. The difference um, for visitors, and you will maybe also have students who are on visas in your schools, is that students who are coming on international student visas are supposed to pay fees to attend school. Students who are here without status but who are planning to stay permanently are allowed to attend without paying fees. Some young people in this situation have an easy job enrolling. Others, even though this policy exists, find it really challenging to enroll. Schools aren't even supposed to ask for immigration documents or proof of immigration status, but that is actually often what happens on the ground to young people. Often families don't have much information about the system and find it really hard to navigate exercising their young people's rights in terms of accessing school. We're dealing with a young person this week who's been in Canada for more than two years. He's 14 now. He's been out of school for two years because his mum understood from the school he tried to enroll in that she had to pay fees, that she wasn't able to do so. So two years of a a young person's education. That's a really good system, a really good example of when a law exists and a policy exists to get young people into school. Um, However, the way it works on the ground doesn't actually work. So you can see already, Although our Immigration Act says to be here, you're supposed to have status, and to study, you're supposed to have status, and to work, you're supposed to have status, our Education Act says even without status, you're able to attend school. So there's already a conflict there between these two pieces of legislation. The situation changes again when young people graduate high school. All those things that we spend years in our education system preparing young people to do once they graduate, go on to work, go on to post-secondary education, all of them would again put them at odds with the ERPA, immigration legislation, if they don't have status. Only this time, there isn't that same every child has the right uh, exception that we see in our Education Act for high school students or grade school students. To access post-secondary education, Not only do you need to get into a program of your choice and be able to pay for it, um, like all of the students you're working with, but as a foreign national, so a person without permanent residence or a person who's not a citizen of Canada, you're also supposed to have a study permit. Without a study permit, most universities and colleges won't let you enroll. And even if they did, you're not eligible for OSAP, Or other financial assistance, including most bursaries. You're probably facing international student level fees, which are often up to six times the amount of domestic fees. And this despite the fact that maybe if you arrive when you were really young, you have done all of your schooling in Ontario and have spent maybe 12, 13 years in school hearing supportive teachers such as yourselves and guidance counsellors Telling you to get ready to go into college and go on to university, and that you have a promising career and life ahead of you. Similarly, without a work permit and most likely without a SIN number, young people who graduate from our high schools without immigration status are likely reduced to working precarious jobs in factories, distribution centres, personal care, construction. Lack of status can mean that they're really vulnerable to abuses by employers, by co-workers. because remember that fear of being deported, that means that people can often be really reluctant to uh, complain or to seek assistance if they're not being treated fairly. The other issue for young people with their immigration status, particularly if they've arrived really early, is they often don't know what the implications of having no immigration status mean for them. Often they may not even know that they have no immigration status until late in high school, because this is something the parents have taken care of. What that sometimes means is it's not till grade 11 or 12, the young person sitting in one of those guidance counselor sessions where we're talking about post-secondary access, that finally dawns on them that maybe all their peers are going off to university and college but maybe they're not. For most young people in this situation, they will not have shared the information about their status with their teachers, with their guidance counselors, with their social workers, perhaps even with their best friends for fear of deportation. And they're not just holding their own safety here, they're actually also holding the safety of their families, their parents, their siblings, who may also be without status. So it puts them in a particularly isolated situation and it sort of makes them sort of run afoul of all the kindly efforts that schools may be doing to actually help them engage in their education and think about accessing post-secondary education. Many young people say to us that the problem is, is that they would really like to go to university or college. Uh, so they're forced to lie to teachers or education, uh, also guidance counsellors about why they're not attending next year, which is an emotionally really hard thing for them. So... What our programme is doing, the CASA programme, is really trying to help at the intersection of immigration and education laws. We provide young people who are without status with access to free, caring, legal representation, so they can explore any options they have to uh, regularise their status or gain permanent status. Uh, And we also help them with accessing grade school and high school if they're struggling at registration level, but also starting to think about accessing post-secondary. There's one program currently in Ontario at York University that will allow students without immigration status to enroll and pay domestic fees, still no OSAP. But the other thing we're doing is really trying to make sure that other universities and colleges get on board as well. Uh, So that's a large area of our work as well. I think I've used up my time, is that right? I think I have. (laughs) Um, What you can take from my talk now is that the intersections between immigration and education are really deep. And I think what it does for young people is it impacts their ability to engage in classrooms, to choose extracurricular options, to think about which courses they're taking. And it also means that whenever you're talking about what they're going to be doing after high school, their understanding of what their options are may be really different from what you're hoping their options are. Uh, So in terms of inclusive language, you're thinking about the young people in your class who may be facing this issue. um, I'd urge you to keep that in mind when young people particularly say to you, uh, I might not be going or I'm hoping to, but maybe it's going to be in the future. There may be something bigger at play. But I'm going
3: to hand over to my colleague now. Thank you. Hello everyone. My name is Gafia and I'm going to be talking about the Justice Center. So what is the Justice Center? The Justice Centers have been established all over the world uh, in 70 different countries in 70 different communities. So the objective of these centers is to essentially move the traditional notions of the courthouse back into the community setting. The the center has been together all of the services that people who come into contact with the criminal justice system are often lacking, such as health and social services, and they attempt to address the root causes of crime by breaking this cycle of offending and improving community safety. So I'm going to be specifically talking about the Justice Center in Toronto Northwest. Um, But in Ontario, there's four of them so far as a pilot project that was launched by the Ministry of the Attorney General. Um, The other ones are in Toronto Downtown Eastside, uh, the City of Kenora and the City of London. And through uh, community assessment, they've assessed the needs of the particular community in order to figure out what the Justice Centre should focus on. So in the Toronto Northwest Centre, it is geared towards uh, young people, specifically the, between the ages of 17 and 18. Um, however, we see Justice Center participants as young as the age of 14. And through the community assessment, they focused on robbery, which is the largest uh, criminal offense that young people of that age group are uh, committed. Unfortunately, um, you can't see the, um, the cycle of the Justice Center and all the resources that it brings together, uh, but essentially there's service providers, health providers, um, police as well, and it's supposed to illustrate like,
1: an, like a holistic center.
3: So at the Justice Center, there is a dedicated on-site team that includes a system navigator. As we know, um, it's really difficult to navigate these systems, uh, even for people with legal backgrounds. Uh, so much less uh, folks from uh, newcomers to the country, as well much less young young children, as well as anybody, it's quite difficult and they don't know where to turn to. Um, especially when a young person comes into contact with um, the criminal justice system, so these system navigators often will um, assist these young people in connecting them with resources, also telling them who to contact in terms of like providing legal assistance, um, even just like applying for funding in case um, if they're unable to afford a lawyer, and just how the system works, like where they need to. Um, go-to essentially. So these system navigators are the core of the Justice uh, the justice Center, and they're fulfilled by two social workers who have been working extensively in the criminal justice system here in Toronto. So at 311 Jarvis, as well as 2201. Um, so they're very familiar with the resources that exist. Um, and then there is also uh, an psychiatrists and psychologists and social worker who also provide um, the assessment tools in order to see what areas in which these young people uh, might be lacking and in order to provide the support. So essentially, once a young person is, is arrested, um, they are released into the Justice Center. And from the Justice Center, an initial intake is conducted by the system navigators uh, that is evidence-based in order to see um, what areas in which this young person is lacking support, uh, such as education, which we'll be getting to, um, but also maybe like some counseling, maybe there's some mental health concerns, maybe there's some um, other ongoing issues, like they might not necessarily be safely housed at the moment. Uh, they have, uh, the, the family dynamics might be quite difficult. and. That might have resulted in them coming into contact with the criminal justice system. The justice system essentially tries to not duplicate resources that exist within the community. Um, The Toronto Northwest area is well-serviced and they provide culturally relevant services. Um, So there's no purpose in having um, external community members like come in and uh, provide a redundancy of services, especially when they're not aware of the nuances that exist. And especially when these young people are, might not necessarily like connect well with um, folks from who might not necessarily understand them. So they try to connect them with community-based resources in that sense. And the purpose of the Justice Center is just to provide like a holistic support. Um, however, at the end of the day, it is still a, a, a courthouse. So the processes that exist within the criminal, the criminal justice system need to, be, uh, need to be followed. So the Crown and duty Council and defense counsel are still like actively participating. Uh, young people do need to attend their court date uh, at the end of the day. And th- their charges uh, are still very real and have a longstanding impact on them. not able to get resolved at the center. Um, However, it is a voluntary process. Uh, It takes a restorative approach in which uh, it tries to reintegrate the young person back into the community and address the harm that was done uh, within the community. So essentially the young person has to choose to participate and they have the, uh, and if they don't, then they're able to their charges addressed in other centers. So, what is the impact and the uh, intersections of criminal law and education? Specifically looking at the Toronto Northwest Center, um, they did a community assessment and realized that the relationship between uh, core academic achievements and broader life outcomes is well well established. There is a high percentage of young people who received section 34 assessments, which are a uh, court ordered um, psychological, psychoeducational assessment. Um, and it, it established that a great, a high percentage of the young people who received the section 34 assessments were diagnosed with learning disabilities, low levels of literacy and or ADHD for the very first time in their life. So usually when these assessments are being done it is Um, a little bit later in life too um, when they have uh, criminal charges. so um, There were no um, learning plans or accommodations put in place at the time when they were in high school and it had a significant impact on their mental health and cognitive and academic success. So of the 721 young people who received the section 34 report only 27% of them gra- ended up graduating from high school after three years. And on average, those young people um, had obtained uh, 13 credits out of 30, which is needed to graduate. And as we are aware, the, that area has uh, um, a large and overrepresentation of uh, young people who identify as Black and Aboriginal who are involved in the criminal justice system. So as a result, the justice center um, is heavily focused on education as a pathway uh, that they would like to disrupt uh, into the criminal justice system. So that takes us to my role. So uh, the, as the education advocate, it is a new position within the uh, justice center, which is a new initiative, but that's what makes the Toronto Northwest one specifically unique as the only one with an education advocate position. Uh, They would like to address the the school to prison pipeline specifically and try to provide young people with the assistance that they need within the education system, whether it means simply assisting them with registering for school, um, identifying why they aren't attending, which is uh, a significant portion of the young people that I've been seeing they, uh, young COVID, uh, they have been uh, disengaged from school uh, for a number of reasons, uh, simply could be uh, lack of not having their basic needs met. Uh, it's kind of hard to think about school when you don't know where you're going to be sleeping at night, uh, as well as uh, maybe feeling that they have to work significantly harder than their peers and as a result feeling pretty disengaged and frustrated about uh, not being able to be successful. So there might be some uh, underlying learning needs that are not being met. Uh, so a psychoeducational assessment might be required. So I asked uh, them and their family in trying to navigate that system and get the, the support that they need, uh, as well as... Um, Less so last year uh, due to COVID-19, but suspensions and expulsions, uh, I would be assisting them with that because that is a legal process and oftentimes people don't realize that they can and should get representation and legal advice for that. Um, so that's a huge connection and essentially trying to break, disrupt the school to prison pipeline is a uh, essential part of my role and how the criminal justice system and education overlap. I
4: think I might be up to time. So uh, I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thanks so much, Ketia, and I'm really thrilled to be here. Um, I apologize in advance, there's a bit of construction happening all around me. So I'm hoping that the folks next door have taken about a 10 minute break so we can get through without too many loud noises. Um, so, as Zoe mentioned, my name is Erica, uh, I'm the Program Manager for the Enhancing Access to Special Education Project with Justice for Children and Youth. Um, I actually am really excited, you know, Sarah had mentioned at the beginning um, during her presentation that there's a difference between what law or what policy states and what happens on the ground, and I mean, we see that with immigration, with education, we see it with youth justice, and we definitely see it when we look at, at special education. Um prior to coming to JFCY, I had actually worked at Free Silvers and ran a school to prison pipeline project there. And I mention it because since joining the JFCY team, I've seen so many um similarities between the two in terms of you look at what you know the ministry states, you look at the regulations that are there, and then you look at what happens in practice on the ground, um, and there can be, you know, quite a difference. And so what we're finding, um, I'll go into the background on the project in a sec, but what we're finding is that it's less so about, uh, you know, we need to, to change the entire system. It's more about how do we support folks in understanding how the system is supposed to operate at all levels so that, um, you know, students, children, and youth are, are getting access to the rights that they have. Um, so the, the EASE project uh, is funded through the Ministry of Education. And so they had approached Justice for Children and Youth um, with a request to develop resources that are child and family friendly uh, to support students and their families in navigating through special education processes. Um, So in looking at what's available out there and I'm sure you're all teachers, you've you've seen the large amount of resources that are available, um, realized that I didn't, we didn't wanna recreate what's already there. Um, There's so much out there. So we thought it really important to do, to hear directly from folks, what is it that's challenging? Um, where can we fill in those gaps? And so for the past few months, we've done consultations uh, Ontario-wide, so meeting with students, with past students, with parents and caregivers, educators, um, you know, from support staff all the way to superintendents, um, community organizations and advocates to really get a sense of what are the challenges. And um, it's been very informative Uh, across the board. I will say we've heard the whole system Uh, so, you know, it kind of makes looking at how do we develop something that will support um, a little bigger than I think we anticipated, but it also speaks directly to the challenges that, you know, students and families are facing. Um, as an example, my background is in social work. I've worked with, within the field of education for over 18 years. We have Mesa, who is a law student who's supporting on this project, and we have um, Emily, who's a staff lawyer. Uh, so, I would think between the three of us, we have quite a fair amount of capacity. And it took the three of us, you know, an hour and a half to figure out one part of the timeline the other day, trying to understand the language and, and look back and forth. And so, if it's that challenging for the three of us to figure out, I can only imagine what it's like being brought into the system and having no clue what to do next. It's um, so one of the identified challenges, as I said, where, you know, the entire system. <laughs> but more specifically finding resources that are really uh, child, you know, student friendly, um, that break everything down in plain and accessible language. And also, again, that the system in practice should work in, in theory should work. And then in practice, there's some big differences.
3: We can go to the next slide.
4: So this is just a really, really zoomed out, um, you know, Picture of the journey through special education and what a uh, student or family may be facing. And this took much longer than I'd like to admit um, for us to develop even this, uh, you know, very simple overview. Um, but when you look at it and, and you think that each block from here actually has its own system within the system within a system, it's just layers upon layers upon layers. Um, so we just wanted to include this as a, as a kind of reminder that. Um, it's just, it's so huge, <laughs> and we're only talking special education, and as you go in, um, there's so many steps to navigate for students and their families. So what we found is, uh, you know, up to 27% of Ontario students, or secondary students, and 17% of elementary uh, school students have special education needs. Um, that is a huge amount of, of children and youth that are going through this. Um, and that's a huge amount of needs that are in our schools. You can go to the next slide. I wanted to add some visuals to everybody. Um, you know, of that amount of students, only 52% of these students have gone through the formal identification process uh, to receive an IEP. So, um, the schools have discretion on providing an individual education plan you know, to students. However, when they go through uh, the identification and um, review committee process, they actually, that opens up doors um, and, you know, access to different supports that may not be available to them otherwise if they're not identified. So when we're looking and we're saying, okay, you know, uh, there's all these students, you know, 27% of students in, in high school have an IEP and under half of them have actually been identified as exceptional, um, that means that under half of them may be getting access to the supports that they're looking for. Uh, in addition, going through this more, more formal process can provide more accountability um, to the to the school board, right? Um, the IEP is supposed to be, it, it is a legal document. Um, however, there's no appeal process for uh, students and there's issues around it. So. If um, a parent or student 15 plus disagrees with what's in there and is saying, you know, the accommodations and or modifications that are written don't actually work for me or, uh, you know, what, my teacher, I keep saying I, I need to follow. I need this accommodation and it's not happening and I don't know what to do or even, hey, my child has been given an IEP and I disagree. There's no formal no formal process for folks to take to advocate for themselves other than you know working their way through the hierarchy of the school. Um, but in the end, the decision actually isn't up to them. Uh, so some of the big challenges um, that have you know have really come out through our projects and that we're working on um, have been identification. Um, you know, some folks don't even get to the first step of being identified. Uh, What has been really interesting and somewhat infuriating has been hearing, um, you know, about the different implementation of policies and and the law uh, across different school boards. So one example is around exceptionalities. Um, So the Ministry of Education lists ADHD as an exceptionality. However, because it isn't listed explicitly across all of their materials, uh, different school boards are interpreting that in a different way. So some school boards recognize it as an exceptionality, and then some school boards don't. So unless there's another, an additional exceptionality that they can identify, that means that they're not recognizing students who have been diagnosed with ADHD as being exceptional. Um, as you can imagine, that can, you know, lead to, to so many different things in a student isn't then going to be provided with the accommodations that will support their learning um that will help to create a a positive environment for them in the classroom um I know that ADHD specifically can bring a lot of different uh you know feelings or stigmas around it um where folks have different understandings of what it is or um you know can see ADHD as being a a behavioral issue instead of of something uh, more serious and so uh, students are in many ways being set up to fail when they're not getting access to the supports that they require and you know um, when a young person isn't getting their needs met in school often that can manifest into different behaviors and you see that when you look at the disproportionate number of students with special education needs that are being suspended or expelled um, we know that Black and racialized students are three times more likely to be suspended or expelled for the same behavior as their white counterparts. And when you look at students with special education needs, they represent more than 50% of those suspensions and expulsions annually. That is a huge number. Um, so we do wonder if more were being provided to these students to meet those learning needs. Um, and this isn't to say it's on the fault of, you know, wonderful teachers. It's it's the bigger systems you know we think that are, are being put into practice in different ways um that they'd be facing more success in school they'd be set up in different ways and um, so for E specifically you know we had been approached to develop resources um and I think because I'm passionate because the team at JSU are all passionate we've turned it into a bit more than it had originally been set out to to accomplish um, so right now we are developing, you know, print and, and web-based resources, brochures, templates that can be um, accessed uh, based on the feedback that we've heard. You know, we've heard that there's a lot of written content out there, but graphics, infographs, um, using social media. I've heard TikTok videos, but I'm drawing the line there. So <laughs> for right now, um, finding different ways to to reach children and use and their families to share information and help to make these processes more accessible and help them to understand what their rights are, how they can advocate for each other, for themselves, how they can support and come together um, would be critical. We're also working to develop a series of educational videos that highlight the big major stats along the special education journey to help um, you know, bring that to life in a different way. And we're working to develop what we hope ends up being somewhat of a systems navigation tool that will be available on the web uh, that can, you know, really support um, students or families in navigating and understanding, you know, what for their specific scenario, what does that look like? And we're working to, through the consultations, through, you know, meeting with educators, with communities, with students, with families. Um, we have been so privileged to meet some incredible people who have gone through the, the system themselves or, you know, to support their young person. And Um, have really taken it on even, you know, long past their child being done school um, and continuing to advocate and support other parents. And um, it's really been quite an incredible uh, process. And so we've been working to figure out how can we bridge connections between the different communities and educators that are volunteering their time after school hours to support and and really um, try to bolster, you know, that network. Um, and then we're also looking at it from a, a more systems innovation lens. In terms of, um, you know, we're writing a recommendations report that's based on all the feedback that we've received and the incredible, uh, innovative ideas that we've heard from everybody across the province. Uh, you know, we believe that doing tele for, for school students, parents, caregivers, organizations um, to support folks in understanding, you know, how they fit into the system within their own roles how they can support, what are the rights, what can we do, um, how they can advocate, uh, you know, to help really create that, that more systems change um, impact. And again, bridging connections, although it's, it's direct service, is also when we bridge connections and we bring folks together that has the power to really um hear everybody's voices. Thank you.
0: Wow, amazing. Thank you so much, um, everyone. Oh, and I'm interrupting because we're about to do a case study.
1: Um, Hi, everyone. Um, It's such a a tiny amount of time to talk to you about these programs that have been um, often years in the making. And uh, the more we dig into the programs as we unfold them, um, we realize how complex each area is as well. Uh, So, But what we did want to say is we started this by saying that um, our clinic is dealing with young people who are often facing these multiple areas of law all at once. Uh, So we thought we'd give you a bit of a scenario to see how the three of us would weigh in on if a particular person, young person, called with issues that touched all of our areas. Um, And you can see that there's a four line scenario here. Uh, We're dealing with a 16 year old girl who's a recent arrival to Canada, has challenges accessing special education supports, and is uh, also facing truancy and criminal charges. Um, And maybe what the three of us will do is just sort of touch on what things spark for us when we look at this scenario. Um, And uh, then if you have any questions about the scenario as well. Um, And so maybe I'll take a stab at it from from Cassa's point of view. Um, The first thing that comes up for me is uh, recent arrival to Canada. What does that mean in terms of this young person's immigration status? And, And it could mean anything. It could mean that they've arrived on a visitor's visa, they've arrived as a PR, they've arrived and they've made a refugee claim, they've arrived uh, with uh, a a TRP, like a temporary residence visa. It may mean that they're with family, they're not with family. So a whole raft of goodness me, do you have any status in Canada? Uh, And if not, what kinds of things will you need? the the other thing that comes up for me here is it's not just her. Um, Any action that she takes in relation to immigration may impact family members if they're equally in the same situation. So trying to help her hold her, but also this bigger picture um, in in her hand as well. And the other piece here for me from an immigration lens is, um, it sounds like she's in school, if she's She's probably registered in school, which is good from from my point of view, but I am thinking about what will happen to her when she graduates. Uh, um, If she graduates and wants to go into post-secondary, how can we deal with her immigration issues before she turns 18, before she graduates? And the last piece is um, immigration uh, intersects with criminal law as well. So if this young person, uh, for example, or uh, ended up with adult criminal charges of a serious nature, that may impact any immigration application she makes or that her family make. So thinking about what the consequences there are for her in terms of, you know, prudency, probably not but criminal charges, there may be an issue there. So those are the bits I would be thinking about, but I'm gonna throw it to Kefia now.
3: Thank you, Sarah. So for truancy, I would um, end up trying to talk to the young person about why they're not attending. Is it a social anxiety? Is there like underlying issues? Um, I would try to assist them in getting maybe some counseling, um, maybe some additional support, as well as trying to um, explore creative ways in which to get this, uh, the 16 year old to attend school. So whether it's like online schooling, um, maybe meeting with the guidance counselor in the school to see like how she's doing previously, maybe request her um, report cards to see if, if she's struggling academically, and maybe that's the reason why she's disengaging. Um, oftentimes it could also be that the school might not be the right fit for the young person. Um, so maybe exploring like other ways in which uh, she might want to re-engage uh, and the criminal charges, uh, some of the young people that I've been helping, it might have uh, been through association, not necessarily as a result of this um, her specifically. So maybe trying to uh, find some positive social um, connections, also working closely with their criminal lawyer to address the criminal charges, as well as uh, trying to get her back into school because usually the participation agreement and trying to get her charges with, uh, resolved or withdrawn uh, seeing some sort of like level of engagement. So seeing uh, this young person, whether or not they're willing to engage, and also just exploring whether there's some uh, special education aspects, like maybe a psychoeducational assessment might be needed, uh, if there is a reason, underlying reason for why um, she's struggling. And on that cue, I'm going to throw it over
4: to Erica to discuss that myself. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I look at this and it just breaks my heart, to be honest. Um, 16 challenges accessing special education means that likely her entire school career, she hasn't had access to the supports that she's needed. Um, if we're being realistic and looking at a psychoed assessment, we're looking at probably a year or two if, you know, the family can, can get one um, sooner through private means. It's really costly, but. Uh, you know, in talking to parents and from my own experiences, I understand um, how challenging it can be to navigate and to advocate for yourself. Um, So if you're adding on the, you know, the fear around immigration status, and um, I can imagine, you know, uh, it being really intimidating and wondering if it's worth rocking the boat um, at the school and even saying, hey, I'm not getting, or my child isn't getting what they need, or, you know, her advocating for herself um, in that way. Uh you know, here I was going to touch on a little bit around, you know, the, the different exceptionalities and how they're not all listed the same, but I already talked about that. But just yeah, thinking about the age, the, the status, the not having access to anything um, already, I would probably connect them with Justice for Children and Youth, not to shoot our own horn, but it's kind of three, you know, very complex areas that come together and they would be really great advocates to support.
1: Thank you. Um, I think that now maybe we can just throw this open to questions. Is it what we think we should do? I see that there's a couple of questions there, and I was busy typing an answer to one of them. Um, <laughs> should we throw this over to you, Zoe, to take yeah. your
0: that would be great, and uh, I think maybe a couple of our questions will put us over time, since there was so much amazing information there. Um, I, before we get started on questions, I'm just going to drop a quick link in the chat for um, an evaluation for everyone who's joined us today to fill out and offer some feedback on what you might like to see moving forward with our summer law institute. So I will put that there, just in case anyone needs to uh, leave us closer to two. Um, And yeah, taking a look at some of our questions, I have a question for Sarah. Um, Says, uh, it seems like it would be hard to target programs to undocumented youth because accessing those services itself would be a sort of disclosure. Can you say anything about how you reach young people and then also safeguard their identity and status?
1: Yeah, it's such a good question, particularly as I said, young people are often not telling anybody about their lack of status, so how would you offer support if you don't know people need help? Um, One thing we've been trying to do, and it's been hard during COVID, is to deliver workshops in schools that really sort of prime young people's ears for these issues without sort of directly saying who he here is without immigration status, which we're obviously not doing. So we have developed workshops specifically uh, to embed in, in most topics really, but particularly grade nine geography, where there is a unit on immigration and we can talk about uh, immigration and migration and who belongs and who doesn't belong. And oh goodness me, if you need help with immigration, or you have got friends who do, you should reach out to us, there's options. Same thing in grade 10 civics, when we're really talking about youth agency and becoming an adult and taking charge of your documents and things. Organists, do you have a birth certificate? Do you have status? You should reach out for help. Um, So that piece, also reaching out to teachers, guidance counselors, youth-led, or sorry, youth-serving organizations, and also health clinics that work with um, and support people without health insurance, such as OHIP. So that's it, really. We often get a lot of word of mouth as well through uh, through young people sharing information about us and also through migrant serving organizations but i agree it's hard it's tough and i think young people often have to hear about it a number of times before they decide to reach out to us thank you so much for that thoughtful
0: answer um our next question is, I think for Kafia, uh, and someone is asking if there are plans to bring a Justice Center to Hamilton, but I think branching off from that, we'd be interested to know if there is you know, some momentum to instituting more locations based on, on what you've told us about the success of, of where they are currently.
3: Um, short answer would be, I hope so. Currently, even the Toronto Northwest um, Justice Center is a pilot project. So Um, It's a one-year, so it would theoretically end in March of 2022. Um, We're hopeful there's a business case to keep that one alive as well as to expand. Uh, We are seeing some momentum and a lot of positive uh, feedback from crowds. We prefer to refer uh, uh, cases to the Justice Center to address specific needs. And there's one in Kenora and London, which have been equally successful. so I hope so is the short answer. Uh, we're currently receiving funding from the federal government, uh, which is funding the provincial fund uh, government in order to put this on. So we're hoping that uh, I guess we'll just have to wait and see.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much, Kavia. And I think maybe Erica, you touched on this a little bit, but um, just a question about um, it seems that, uh, teachers are often under-resourced and struggling. And this seems like a problem that needs a systemic response. Uh, and do you have connections to parents groups or other people who are advocating for better resources for support, supporting IEPs and other special education? And it sounds like that was a lot of what you were discussing on the last
4: slide there. I always forget the mute. Um, so the question was, do we have connections to folks that are supporting in most different areas? Um, absolutely. Actually, it was just incredible how many how many individuals and organizations and groups, whether grassroots or, you know, fully funded and all these, um, so many individuals province-wide uh, that are working to do, you know, to provide access to support, to, to support them. this. And what we're looking at is really, um, right now, everyone's kind of working in silos and it's not through any fault of their own. It's just, it's, it's, it's so big. And, you know, most of these are volunteer run Um, so how do we kind of create a center hub where folks can go if they're looking for help and and to connect but if folks are looking for specific resources please reach out I'm so happy to help amazing
0: thank you Erica and thank you everyone so much I feel like I could spend so much time hearing about each of these projects individually but getting a a taste of them all today was was really really helpful Um, and I I think that, that brings us to the end for today. I think Michelle is just gonna pop up our schedule for the rest of SLI. I am, and sorry to interrupt. While I'm doing this, there was uh, one more question that was submitted in chat from Catherine, who's asking, will you be offering webinars aimed at students? And I told her that on Ogen's side, we have some available on our YouTube channel that are perfectly appropriate for students, but I wanted to, maybe the JFCY team can answer that question while I'm pulling up our,
1: uh, our schedule. Um, I can take a stab. Um, we have been offering our PLE or classroom workshops um, online during COVID and I guess we'll continue to do that. So and that can be a full range. So on any kind of legal topic. So if you're interested in any sessions from OGEN, um, or sorry from JFCY, please get in touch and we can talk about what makes most sense for your students and also what kind of platform you're using and how we can make that work. Of course. Amazing. Thank you, Sarah. Uh,
0: and as we look at our our schedule for ongoing uh, events in the course of the Summer Law Institute, I want to bring everyone's attention to uh, the Black Legal Action Center event that we have uh, next week on the 25th, which I think carries on a lot of the threads of the school-to-prison pipeline um, and issues of of overrepresentation of racialized youth that we've been discussing today. And I know they'll they'll have some amazing uh, information to bring to us as well. Um, but I just want to say a huge thank you to our panelists uh, for all the work that you continue to do and, and for sharing it with us today. Yes, Erica.
4: I'm so sorry. I sent um, I sent one of you a link, and I'm not sure if it's worth sharing with participants gotcha. or not, but um, it was a school-to-prison pipeline project we'd done a few years back, and I'd actually done it in partnership with Jody from the Black Legal Action Center, who I think is presenting, and um, thought it might tie in quite nicely with what we're all talking about as well
0: amazing. I'll pop that into the chat for everyone here.
4: Thank you so much.
0: Um, and I think that that brings an end to today's session for the Summer Law Institute. And uh, yeah, thank you so much, everyone. Um, and again, to our, our lovely attendees, please take a moment to tell us a bit about what you'd like to see in future and then how you enjoyed the program today. So thank you very much, everyone. Have a great afternoon.